Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. My new book, Slanted, is out, by the way. We had a really great first week with so many people looking for why the news has gotten to the place that it's gotten. And that's what Slanted is all about. You can buy it anywhere. Today, we are going to talk about the upcoming episode of Full Measure, one of the last places in America to get its first case of coronavirus. If you've followed me or looked at some of my work, you know that one of my primary goals these days is to try to do off-narrative reporting that other people aren't thinking of doing for whatever reason, or that powerful interests don't want us to do that are actively keeping us from putting things on the air or censoring the content. So I was thinking probably a lot in the last six months or so, how different the coronavirus experience is in big cities where some of my friends live, like New York City, which really was hit so hard in the spring, and in places that are more rural, that have had an entirely different experience. Coronavirus in some of those places arrived much, much later, and they never quite got to that sort of panicky state. It's not that they're not taking it seriously. It's not that they're denying coronavirus, but because of the nature of where they live, they haven't had to have a similar response. And when we report things on the news, we tend to show worst case scenarios. Understandably so, what you're doing is reporting anomalies sometimes, or the biggest, the worst, the largest, the best, whatever. So we really have paid a lot of focus and attention on the hot spots where coronavirus has really been such a problem and has stressed the healthcare systems, and not so much where a lot of Americans live who see these images on TV and they don't really relate to them because that's not the experience they're having. So I've been thinking about what if we went to a place that didn't have a lot or didn't have a lot of coronavirus at the same time much of America did that's been reported on television. And I found that place and I went there recently. That's what this week's cover story on Full Measure takes a look at. I think it's fascinating. I learned a lot. It's always interesting to go into, I guess, what we call middle America or places you don't see on the news a lot and see what they're thinking about and how they're handling things. So the place that I went with my producer, Daniel, and photographer, Brian, is Ekalaka, Montana. And the population in Ekalaka, Montana, is about 300 people. If you want to count the whole county, it's about 1,200 people. What is this town like? It's a very small western town where the wild, wild west truly once reigned. In fact, they say that Ekalaka was started about 1885, by a guy who is traveling west, apparently, and I think his name was Carter. This is Carter County. And he wanted to build a saloon, and his wagon got stuck in the mud in this place, 
And he thought, well, this is as good a place as any. So he stopped, and this town, this county, built around that. And as it happens in doing research, because it's pretty easy if you look around a little bit to find out where coronavirus is and isn't and how big is it, it is in certain places, this town was one of the last places in America to get its very first case of coronavirus. And I thought, let's find out how they handled it when they finally got it, which was not long ago. And so when most of the world saw these alarming numbers last spring, they had nothing in Ekalaka, Montana, but they had to shut down like everybody else. Imagine how strange it was for them to be watching these images on television of how bad it is in places like New York City, in parts of Florida, and to be told that they too have to shut things down and close their schools and do all of this when they haven't had a single case. And it would be another six months before they would get their first case of coronavirus. So when I got to the town, you know, you always want to go to the cafe. There's only one, the Wagon Wheel Cafe. And I sat down, the first three people that I spoke to had recently caught and survived coronavirus. It was the sheriff and a couple of other guys. Uh, One man told me that he had just uh, gotten back out the day before I came after being quarantined and ill. Uh, An older gentleman, but he said, he was okay. And then a second older gentleman said that he got it after his daughters visited and they got it and called him and said, you probably have it too. And he did get what he described as a slight cold. He tested positive. He's better now, thank goodness. But by the time uh, coronavirus started going around in Ekalaka, they had already, they say, learned a lot by watching what happened everywhere else. I spoke to one young lady at the cafe and she said, kind of like I described, that when they're watching these things on TV, it just didn't seem real. Not that they didn't think it was real, but they weren't experiencing the same thing at the same time. She said they weren't going into big stores. People weren't wearing masks everywhere and social distancing. They were just still kind of going on as normal without a single case. And nonetheless, they suffered a lot because they were doing the shutdown. And even though it's a small community, shutting down even a small community is um, a really big deal, especially this is a farming community. The way they socialize is church and the small school, and suddenly you're telling them they don't see a whole lot of other people anyway sometimes. You're telling them they can't go to the few places where they do socialize. So here they were six months out from it being anywhere close to their county, and they were locked down. So I talked to the sheriff, and He basically said, and by the way, he just got over COVID-19, as I mentioned, he told me that when it finally did show up, this was um, early fall, that they knew they could have shut down again, but by the time it got there, he said people were tired of the games. I then moseyed on over to the First Baptist Church. I think there are four or five churches in this very small town, and I spoke to the pastor of the First Baptist Church, Steve DeFord. And he basically says that after that spring closing, which was hard on everybody, and they did shut down the church, did online services for a few weeks back then when they had no cases. But when time passed and nobody got sick, things, of course, eventually went pretty much back to normal. And then, just like the sheriff said, when coronavirus did finally rear its ugly head not long ago, they decided to resist another shutdown. They have not missed a beat with their in-person Sunday church services. 
Now they go to church, they do sterilize, they're careful about processes, but they decided after trying the shutdown in the spring, they weren't going to do it again. So life has gone on a lot more normally here than in some other places where coronavirus has hit. And he pointed out, the pastor, that this is an agricultural ranching community. The animals have to be fed. You can't just shut down supplies and stop feeding the animals. You have to keep going and keep moving. But I thought one of the most interesting stories about what happened in Ikalaka was what they did with the schools. Very novel and very different than probably what you've heard before. We'll talk more about that after a short break. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted. Off-narrative people and views are controversialized or neatly deposited down the memory hole. Partisan pundits, analysts, and anonymous sources fill news space, leaving little room for facts. The line between opinion and fact has disappeared. In my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, I reveal the struggles inside newsrooms where journalism used to rule. For the first time, dozens of current and former top national news executives, producers, and reporters give insider accounts speaking with shocking candor about our industry's devolution. Buy Slanted today for yourself or as a holiday gift for someone you care about anywhere. We're back, and I mentioned a moment ago that I decided to visit rural Ikalaka, Montana, one of the last places to get its first case of coronavirus, and they took sort of a novel approach when coronavirus finally arrived not very long ago, but I thought that really the most fascinating part of their story is what they did with their schools and why. I first spoke to a young woman at the Wagon Wheel Cafe, and she told me that Really, a lot of families there have a lot of kids. I mean, she said on average, most of them have four to six kids. So when school shuts down, it's a really big deal, and it's tough on everybody, like it is everywhere. But you can imagine if you've got four to six kids at home, how that is to have them all at home and without internet. Because again, and I did a story on lack of rural internet on Full Measure earlier this season, which you can find, by the way, if you go to fullmeasure.news. And click into any story and the search bar will appear, the little magnifying glass at the top of fullmeasure.news. And you could put in internet or the internet divide, which is what I called the story. And you can watch that story, how many millions of people don't have meaningful internet. So out here, a lot of people in Ikalaka, they live on ranches. They don't have internet and it's hard for them to access schooling when they shut things down. As an aside, as I was driving to Ikalaka with my crew, we were coming from Wyoming and then on our way to South Dakota. For more stories, you'll see on Full Measure soon. It was so in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just with nothing around, I was talking with the crew about how do the kids go to school here when you live 50, 100 miles and you don't even see another car drive by? Surely there aren't school buses that come out. I wondered how they get their mail. So um, I asked that question in Ikalaka, and if you've lived in a rural place, this probably isn't unusual or new to you, but I hadn't heard it. They said that there are small schools out there, and a bus does come and pick up the kids out in these communities way far out, and they attend schools out there talking about 
lower schools, but they said for high school, they have to come to the big city, the big city of Ikalaka in this case, with population of about 300, because that's the only high school. So what do they do? They live so far away, they actually send the kids to come in town during the week and live there in Ikalaka because they can't drive back and forth every day. It's too far. And then they go back home on the weekends. Sometimes the families move with them or come in with them Monday through Friday. Sometimes the kids stay with other family members Monday through Friday in the town and then go home on the weekends. There are houses in Ikalaka that they say are just used for this purpose, for the purpose of kids going to school, going to high school Monday through Friday, and then go back out to the ranch and help out at home on the weekends. So really interesting rural life. And by the way, when I asked about the mail, for those who live way, way, way out, I was told they get mail delivery every other day. And I think that's still amazing. And they do get Amazon Prime in Ikalaka, Montana, because I asked that question too. So back to the schools. Uh, With the schools shut down in the spring with no cases, of course, as I mentioned, it was hard on everybody. And then when May came, after the spring shutdown, they still didn't have a single case. They had their high school graduation ceremony. And in the story that you'll see Sunday on Full Measure, I have a little video from that. They did it outside and looked like they were kind of social distancing by families just because we're still in semi-shutdown mode. But unlike a lot of high schools, they were still able to have their ceremony at least together and have a real graduation. So I spoke to the principal there at Ikalaka who is also, by the way, the school superintendent, as well as principal of the high school. His name is Stephen Eli. And he's an interesting fellow who moved all the way here into freezing cold, middle of nowhere, Ikalaka from Florida after the spring shutdown. So he'd already been through pretty big problems in Florida and then was convinced to take the job of school superintendent, high school principal after that in Ikalaka, just in time for them to deliberate whether they should close in the fall because by now they'd gotten their first cases. And he told me it was very interesting because he said the effect of the students closing in the spring must have been dramatic because they were adamant, meaning the students. He said they actually had a school board meeting. This is in the beginning when they were seeing the first cases where there was talk about not coming back to school for a couple of weeks, doing a shutdown, you know, not opening up as soon. And a majority of the students came to the meeting and demanded, he says, that they be allowed to come to school. They didn't want to go home. They didn't want to distance learn. They wanted to be at school. And the principal says they stood up and voiced their opinion in a very adult way. And so school went forward in Ikalaka despite the coronavirus outbreak. In fact, even with coronavirus in town, they played a full fall team of sports. The high school football team did quite well. The girls' volleyball team did quite well. And Eli, the principal, said that he would tell them when they were playing, look, not everybody in the country is allowed to go out and play sports right now, and you guys get to. So that was interesting. And, of course, as you already know, students in general, children, kids, young people, don't get sick. It's pretty rare they get sick with coronavirus, and it's almost unheard of that they get very, very sick or die. So they didn't have anything serious going on with the students. But here's the important point that I guess I thought was the most interesting. Teaching is different too. During my visit there, the high school math teacher wasn't there because she was under quarantine after having contacted 
someone who had coronavirus. So she had to be at home for 14 days. But instead of shutting the doors of the high school, they flipped the script. The kids still come to school every day. And the teacher, who wasn't sick, she was just being quarantined in case, she was teaching at home via computer on a big TV monitor. So the kids, again, these are very small classes, very small school. They were coming to school every day like normal. And they had their seating chart written up on the board. Someone had passed it along. They knew they were where they were supposed to sit. And the teacher would appear you know, to them on the TV screen and she could see them on a camera. And I guess the point is, it kind of seems to make sense, particularly there, that instead of sending all the kids home and making the teachers go to school and teach off of a computer, they're letting the one teacher stay home when necessary and letting all the kids still come to school. So the principal said, it's business as usual. They know what to do. It's been very seamless and that it's a lot easier for the one or two that have to be out of the classroom because of some kind of exposure to let them stay out and continue to teach as they've asked to do when they're not sick, these teachers. A lot easier to let them do that than to say, everybody's got to go home and have a teacher come to school in an empty room by themselves trying to get to all the homes, particularly where they don't have good internet. So I don't know, seems like a model that maybe some other places could use. I know there are questions about internet security and that sort of thing, but it just seems like it makes sense, and it definitely seems to make sense for them. So how many people in this small town had coronavirus when I was there, or had had coronavirus? So during our visit, they gave us the count. It was about 80 people in this town of 1,200 in the county had gotten coronavirus, and they did emphasize that just because they're handling things differently, particularly after after observing what happened everywhere else, how hard it was on them in the spring when they closed before they had cases, how hard closings were for the rest of the country to handle where they've done it. Just because they're handling things differently, they say, doesn't mean they're not taking it seriously. They understand that it's serious enough that people can die and they're not taking it lightly. They just say that every community has unique needs. And of course, their community is different than a lot because of its size and that Those communities, they think, should decide what's best for them. The sheriff pointed out that in his view, even the governor, he says, should just stay back and let the locals in these cases take care of the locals, and that's how the system is supposed to run. If you want to see this story with some really terrific scenics, and you'll get to hear from some great people in Ecolaca, Montana, you can watch Full Measure on Sunday. To get the TV listing, you can go to fullmeasure.news and click about, and there's a pretty updated listing of stations and times across the country. We feed to 43 million households every Sunday. Or you can go to CherylAckeson.com and click the full measure tab. And also my station list that I've put there is a little more updated, but the stations do change their times from time to time. And I'm not always sure what the time is. You can check your local listings. Also, we can be seen live or on demand using the app STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. But maybe the easiest way, if you're not sure how to find Full Measure at first, is to go to our website, fullmeasure.news, and you can see all the latest segments. In fact, on Sundays, after the program airs in most markets in the morning, by about noon Eastern time, you can see all the segments posted online right there for free. And it's great to binge watch some of these past stories Maybe the easiest way to do that is to go back to CherylAckeson.com, 
where it says full measure and there's a link to cover stories. What I, I hear the most about people who watch our cover stories and binge watch some from the past, they feel like this is how the news used to be. They see what they've been missing out on because when you watch TV or read the news now, you're often hearing the same three or four stories, usually political stories, hashed over over and over again with two sides, you know, a political operative from one side, a political operative from another side, saying much, not learn, not teaching us a lot, a lot, we're not learning a lot. There's a lot of other news going on in the world, in this country and in the world. We've traveled around the world for full measure and brought really interesting stories and reported them just in a fair, neutral way. I'm not taking sides. I'm listening fully. If I interview an author who may be, as has happened, a liberal Democrat who's talking about something they wrote a book about or a conservative Republican, I'm going to listen to them, let you decide what you think about them. When I do a story about a controversy, such as last week we ran our story on the transgender divide, as I called it, the controversy over whether high school athletes on the boys' team should be able to overnight switch to the girls' team without hormones or surgery, that was covered in an even-handed way. I'm letting you hear from both sides, and then you can decide what you think about it. I don't have to tell you what to think. That's what we specialize in on full measure. What else do we have coming up this week? Well, for one, one of my pet projects, one of the things I'll be talking even more about on my program is censorship, censorship of people, of news outlets, of news organizations, of topics. And big tech is front and center on this with the censorship by Google and Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And there was a recent hearing uh, in Congress about this sort of thing and what ought to be done about it. So what I did was synopsize some of the testimony and some of the issues in case you missed that hearing. It didn't get a whole lot of coverage, maybe just a couple of sound bites here and there. I will also have a segment from a hearing that I testified at this past week. The hearing looked at, I guess you could call, unanswered investigations. It was held by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, which is chaired by Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican of Wisconsin. And he was lamenting what I have heard so many members of Congress lament in the past 10 years, Democrats and Republicans alike, that when they try to conduct the oversight they're supposed to conduct on federal agencies, they are stonewalled by the agencies. doesn't matter who's in the administration, doesn't matter who's in the majority. These agencies often thumb their nose at these congressional requests, redact information that's actually then or maybe already been provided to members of the media or leaked, but then when Congress wants a document, they get a blank piece of paper or a piece of paper that's been blacked out entirely, or maybe nothing at all. Kind of reminds me of Freedom of Information Act requests, and I've talked about this for years. They're completely ineffective. The federal agencies, at least when I file them, pretty much never respond in the lawful time that they're required to respond, which is 30 days. For example, I requested, and I know other journalists did too, emails written by or received by Dr. Fauci, from the National Institutes of Health, and this was probably in April, so those were due within 30 days. Where are we now? December, not a peep. Nothing happens to them. Nobody does anything about it. If you sue, which you can do, of course, it costs you money. They spend taxpayer money defending themselves. If you sue, ultimately, as more time goes on and they stonewall, 
you may get some documents and then nobody's punished and they've effectively spent taxpayer money and delayed another one year, two year, three years. I had a case where I was looking for information on EVD68 and AFM, acute flaccid myelitis. In other words, these were some disorders and diseases that were thought to be paralyzing children, still out there, by the way, inexplicably, inexplicably, and far more cases than many other things that the CDC does talk about, but the CDC wouldn't talk about this mysterious disease, and I was following that for quite some time with the help of some doctors and insiders and just gumshoe reporting, and they were being so strangely closed about it. CDC only talks about what they want to talk about. doesn't mean that there's not a health risk, but certain health risks they want to emphasize and some that they, they want to minimize. And for some reason, not talking about this, I filed for documentation about where the origins might be. At one point, they weren't even releasing a list of what states these paralyzed children were occurring in, this paralysis cases. And they gave a totally bogus argument for a while that said it was for patient confidentiality. Well, we all know that there's nothing that reveals confidential information by saying you have seven cases in Florida versus 20 cases in Florida. And I think what they were doing was trying to keep us from, at least maybe keep me from comparing how many cases I knew were out there from reports anecdotally that I was able to track versus what they were reporting because they made this weird paralysis that was happening not a reportable disease. In other words, despite the fact that it was mysterious and emerging and they said they didn't know why it was, they were not requiring states to even tell them about it if they had a case. Oddly enough, sometimes they want numbers to go up when there's an illness. Sometimes they don't want the numbers to be high for whatever reason. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request. This went on for years. Finally sued, went to court, got some documents, but by then, you know, some years had gone by and the immediacy of the news story, you know, I needed the information within a day, not within years. They know if they've stalled long enough that they've diminished the chances that any of this information will make it in a news story that anybody will care. So it's very perverted and nobody does anything about it. And the same problem is happening with members of Congress and the committees when they request information from the FBI, from whoever. And it used to be, at least some years ago, if you were the majority on a committee and in the Senate, what I mean by that, the Senate right now is a majority of Republicans, so they get to call a lot of shots. The House now is a majority of Democrats. They get to call a lot of shots. And so whoever's in the majority in the House or the Senate and runs a committee, let's say the Senate Homeland Security Committee, now run by a Republican with Democrats in the minority, if you ask for stuff from agencies and your same party was in the presidency, Trump being a Republican, you used to get some of these documents or more of them, or you would be more likely to get some of them. Not if you were the opposite party, not so much Democrats asking Republicans or vice versa. But now, under Trump, the Republicans can't even get the information from the Republican agencies with Republican-appointed leaders in them. It's just stonewalling across the board. And this has been obviously very frustrating to them. Again, both Democrats and Republicans have complained about this for quite some time. So this hearing, as Senator Ron Johnson rotates off his six-year term as committee chairman, was looking at some unfinished business, things that they've been stonewalled about, 
some things they haven't been able to find out about, the lack of media coverage on some of these really important stories, which is tied to all of this, because if we in the media cover a story or cover the fact that there is improper stonewalling going on and documents not being turned over, that can create enough pressure sometimes for change. But when the press decides it's nothing to cover or when they don't care about it or when they say it's actually not a problem because they're conducting advocacy for one side or the other, then it's less likely that that shakes the tree and things just sort of stay with the status quo. So why was I asked to testify? Well, as a member of media who recently wrote this book, Slanted, and my last two books, The Smear and Stonewalled, that addresses some of these issues, they wanted to hear about that. Also, the fact that, as some of you know, I was spied on by our own government agencies and have been suing since about 2013, 2014, to try to get the Justice Department to hold its guilty agents accountable, which they won't do. So not only will the Department of Justice not prosecute for crimes their agents who committed these offenses, even with airtight forensic evidence, and now I have an agent who was part of one of the spy operations against me and many others admitting it, talking about it, naming names, but Department of Justice still defending the guilty agents. And they knew this at the committee and asked me to testify a little bit about that as sort of unfinished business. Seven years later, my case still in court, trying to get the kind of accountability and justice that Department of Justice is supposed to pursue. And as an aside, I knew this case that I'm pursuing about the spying on me, it's not important because it happened to me. I know it's not important to most people. It's important in my view because I knew it was happening to other people And I suspected it would keep happening if nobody were held accountable. And that's exactly what happened in 2016 and beyond. As long as the people responsible for this sort of illegal and unconstitutional behavior, as long as they're not held accountable, nothing happens to them, why wouldn't it continue? So I testified about that. We'll have a segment of that on Full Measure on Sunday as well. I hope you'll check us out. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will consider subscribing to Full Measure After Hours, as well as my other podcast, the Cheryl Atkinson podcast, wherever you like to listen and share it and leave a great review. Don't forget to order Slanted, maybe a great holiday gift for somebody who is a free thinker and wants to know more about the death of the news as we once knew it. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.